So let's talk about Navalny and why he doesn't hate the goat. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. So, I'm back, and I had been wondering quite what to devote this particular episode to, until Alexei Navalny basically gave me no choice. One has to hand it to him. He is an extraordinary figure. I mean, there he was already in the midst of an 11 and a half year sentence on pretty much entirely, no, not pretty much, entirely spurious fraud charges, when, of course, it was clear that to the regime that that wasn't enough. And now he's been given an additional 19 years on six counts, including one of extremism, and not just an extra 19 years, and we should add this is uh, to follow on rather than concurrent, but that it will be held in a special regime colony, which is basically this sort of top security type of environment, largely reserved for terrorists and mass murderers and the like, which includes such constraints as only seeing his family once per year, being able to receive one parcel per year, and indeed not actually being able to talk to any other convicts. Clearly this is not just simply about putting him in terrible conditions, but it's also very much about isolating him, about not allowing him to reach out to, whether it's his own small world within the zone, within the labour camp system, or the wider community. And in that respect, I couldn't help but feel it was quite reminiscent of the declaration that the prosecutor made during the trial of Italian communist Antonio Gramsci back in 1928, who said, we must prevent this brain from working for 20 years. And indeed, Gramsci was uh, imprisoned, well, he was sentenced to over 20 years in, in prison. So, you know, it is clear that it's an attempt to basically deprive Navalny of any opportunity still to have some kind of traction on the fate of Russia. And so it's all the more striking that at the same time we actually have, coming out after this trial, a lengthy, I mean, basically it's his first extended piece of writing uh, ever since, since the trial in which he goes through essentially why things went wrong and very, very clearly lays the blame not so much on the sort of current regime of kleptocratic spooks and the like. They are, as we'll come to, they are the goats who will eat the cabbage because, of course, that's what goats do but rather for the people who let the goats into the cabbage patch. In other words, the people who were fated as the the, the great hope of Russia back in the 1990s. And in this, I think he's absolutely right. For reasons I'll come to toward the end, for me, the 1990s are really where the original sin of Putinism emerged. It's because of things that were done in 1990s, we ended up, or the Russians ended up, with a Putin. Not necessarily 
Vladimir Vladimirovich himself, but a Putin. So what I'm going to do is actually, because I think this is a really important document, is go through it, and yes, you will hear substantial chunks being just simply read to you with my commentary around it, though I would also advise you to actually read the original thing. The ever-reliable Medusa has already uh, put up a English-language translation, and as usual, I will leave a link in the program notes. But yes, I want to go through it and pick up various points, make a few disagreements, but more often actually express considerable support for what he's saying. So, what does he actually say? I mean, he sort of goes into about, you know, basically anger and hatred. Why and who does he feel it? And he says, look, often it's not actually necessarily about the, the judges and such like who are actually condemning him. Now, where does his great hatred come? As he says, not the cops, not the outlaw thieves from the colony, not the FSB officers who command them. You'll be surprised, but not even Putin. At times like this, I hate people I previously loved, for whom I stood up, for whom I argued to the hilt. I also hate myself that once I loved them. Now, having set up that, he talks about the fact that while he's sitting in his, his shizo, his strafni izolator, his kind of punishment cell, he's reading the uh, Soviet dissident Natan Sharansky's uh, autobiography, Fear No Evil. And he's saying basically how extraordinary he finds Sharansky, uh, the fact that he spent 400 days in punishment cells and, and shizo. And he can't imagine how he survived and such like. And... The thing that he talks about is the degree to which he finds it extraordinary how familiar so much of it is, ranging from just simply the day-to-day -day experiences of life in a labour camp through to the, the particular sort of dilemmas of the time. And then he goes on. In the introduction, and remember that this is a book that came out in 1991, he says, Sharansky writes that it is in prisons that the virus of free thinking persists. And he hopes that the KGB will not find an antidote to this virus. Sharansky was wrong. The antidote was found. And he goes on to say, you know, what has the KGB got to do with it? There was no creeping or overt coup in our country led by people from the special services. They did not come to power by pushing the Democrat reformers out of power. They did it themselves. In other words, the Democrat reformers did it themselves. They called them themselves. They invited them themselves. They taught them how to fake elections, how to steal property from entire industries, how to lie to the media, how to change laws to suit themselves, how to suppress opposition by force, even how to organise idiotic, stupid, talentless wars. And it's worth noting, after all, that presumably in this he's particularly referring to the first Chechen war that happened in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin. This is why I can't help it, he goes on, and I fiercely hate those who sold, drank and wasted the historical chance that our country had in the early 90s. I hate Yeltsin and Tanya and Valya, daughters, Chubais and the rest of the corrupt family who put Putin in power. I hate the swindlers whom we used to call reformers for some reason. Now it is very clear that they did nothing but intrigue and take care of their own wealth. Is there any other country where so many ministers of the, quote, government of reforms, unquote, became millionaires and billionaires? 
I hate the authors of the most stupid authoritarian constitution, which they sold to us idiots as democratic, even then giving the president the power of a full-fledged monarch. He goes on, and yes, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a large chunk, but I think it's really important. I hate oligarch Gusinski, Gusinski being one of the media magnates who threw his weight behind Boris Yeltsin, and then in due course was also part of the decision-making process about the elevation of, of Putin, even though he then fell foul of him. Anyway, Gusinski, even though if he's no longer an oligarch, because he blatantly hired Bobkov, the deputy head of the KGB, this is Philip Bobkov, a very nasty piece of work, who was responsible for persecuting dissidents. They thought it was a joke at the time. Haha, <laughs> he put innocent people in jail and now he works for me. Kind of like a bear in livery. So not only was there no lustration, in other words, the process to remove from public life anybody who was involved in previous oppression and crimes. So there was no lustration. There was the encouragement of villains. Now, literally, those people who worked for Bobkov as young employees are putting Yashin, Karamurza and me in jail. We often hear that the Yeltsin government could not do anything because they were opposed by the communists in the parliament. Nevertheless, this didn't prevent the mortgage auctions of 1996, but for some reason it prevented judicial reform and reform of the security services. I hate the entire leadership of Russia, which in 1991, after the putsch, and in 1993, after the shelling of Parliament, had absolute power and did not even try to make obvious democratic reforms. I think this is really interesting because he's very much setting himself against those people who essentially present what happened with Putin as part of some kind of KGB veterans, Czechists, creeping coup of the country. And on one level, that's a very appealing narrative. Um, it, it's conspiratorial and also it frankly takes much of the blame off both the quote-unquote reformers of the 1990s, who absolutely, I mean, basically reformed the economy into their own pockets, but it also takes a lot of the blame off the West for its role. And I'll talk at the end, this is not something that Navalny goes into, but I'll talk at the end, I think, about the West's role in the 1990s and the lessons that may provide for the future. But the point is this, after all, barbarians very rarely take the city. They are generally invited in. And, and this is something that I'm actually working on as part of a, a long-term project about the sort of the, uh, the degree of, I mean, we could call it Czechist culture, spook culture or whatever, but the degree in which, as it were, the values that uh, we see articulated amongst the Czechists, the self-interested uh, kleptocracy that is married with or perhaps masked by invocations of extreme patriotism and nationalism, the willingness to use all kinds of extrajudicial, extra-legal instruments and then claim some kind of higher rationalisation for it, the good of the country, historical destiny, whatever else. All of these are things that were not foisted on the political leadership. It was instead that a political leadership that was looking for these things actually then found itself not so much getting into bed with the Czechists, but actually showing a bit of leg and hoping that they could attract the Czechists to them. 
Navalny goes on after all after that passage I read to very much kind of draw some direct parallels with countries like the Czech Republic, Poland, Estonia and Lithuania, which have reformed a lot more efficiently. And obviously he says that different people were in power then, good people, honest and sincere too. But the interesting thing is that what he's actually suggesting is there is no objective reason why Russia could not have reformed, could not have ended up more like those. Look, he's not naive. He's not thinking that actually by now Russia should be Norway. What he is saying, though, is that there is nothing that we should accept as inevitable about Russia's... I hesitate to call it backsliding, because in some ways it never really became democratic, I would suggest. Though obviously it was nothing like as authoritarian as it's becoming now under Putin, post-February 2022. But nonetheless, the the main point is to not accept this cop-out that says, look, Russia, it's too big, its historic legacy is too toxic, the challenges it faces are too great etc. And therefore, what can we expect? So in this respect, you know, he's talking about hatred and anger, but he's also mobilizing that in the cause of optimism. And again, optimism is something that I do want to come back to later on. So he goes on to say, it was not with Putin in 2011, but with Yeltsin, Chubais. That's Anatoly Chubais, key figure under Yeltsin, pushing the sort of crash privatization, crash free market experiment in, in Russia. Later, head of a series of, of powerful uh, economic groups, and who has, in fact, left the country, denounced uh, the invasion and, and the Putin regime, but nonetheless, you know, clearly played a, a crucial role in, in shaping. Russia up to now. Anyway, but with Yeltsin, Chubais, oligarchs and the entire Komsomol party gang that called themselves Democrats, that we went not to Europe, but to Central Asia in 1994. He goes on, when Putin's KGB slash FSB officers got free access to political posts, they didn't have to do anything. They just looked around and exclaimed in amazement, hey, was that allowed? If the rules of the game are like this, so that it's possible to steal, lie, falsify, censor, and all courts are under our control, then we'll have a pretty good turnaround here. We let the goat in the cabbage warehouse, and then we wonder why it ate all the cabbage. It's a goat. Its mission and goal is to eat cabbage. It can't think of anything else. It's useless to hassle him. Similarly, Putin's FSB official can't think of anything else but to build a huge house and imprison those they don't like. I can't stand the goat, but I hate those who let it into the cabbage store. Which helps explain my perhaps potentially rather cryptic uh, initial opening line. But this is the thing, it is that sense that however much one may despise the current generation of kleptocrats, they did not emerge out of nowhere. The key thing of that, and there are lots of key things, and my apologies, that's obviously my phrase of the day, is that at the same time, one has to, again, come back to this, not accept that this was inevitable. This is his greatest fear, he says. I don't just believe, I know that Russia will still have a chance. This is a historical process. We will again be at a crossroads. In horror and cold sweat, I jump up in my bunk at night when I think that we had a chance again, but we again went the same way as the 90s. 
following the ends justify the means sign, where it's written in small letters, faking elections is not always a bad thing. Look at these people, what kind of juries are they? It doesn't matter that he's a thief, but he's a technocrat and he stands up for bicycle lanes. Give these people a free hand and they will choose anything they want. The government is still the only European in Russia and other wisdom of enlightened authoritarianism. And it's perfectly true, I must admit, that, that particularly that line about the government is still the only European in Russia. We got that a lot in the 1990s, when there was a sense that, of course, it has to be a, a dirigiste process. Of course, one cannot really trust the Russian people. And instead, it's this handful of slick, westernized, besuited reformers who actually needed to, kicking and screaming, drag Russia into Europe. Well, it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. He says, What I have written about the 90s is not a historical exercise, reflection or meaningless complaining. It is the most important and most urgent issue of political strategy for all supporters of the European path and democratic development. And this is where we're really getting to the meat of it. Now, in fairness, he then actually has a fairly lengthy diversion, leaping onto his hobby horse uh, about his, his anger towards particularly Ksenia Sobchak, the kind of socialite reformist come, basically opportunist, some would say, and Alexei Venediktov, the shaggy-haired editor of Echo Moscovy Radio, and particularly for Venediktov's role in blessing uh, well, an applied electronic voting system, which was an absolute gift to electoral fraud on, on the part of the state. Um, so anyway, he, he definitely has a very large axe to grind on that point. But he says, look, it's just a, you know, an, a single example, but it, like the situation with Murzagulov, now here again I think I need another little footnote for those people who don't necessarily follow a lot of the details, Rostislav Murzagulov, who essentially worked within, I think it was the Bashkortostan local administration until 2021, when he left Russia, denounced the regime, and now hosts a news program on exiled post-oligarch Khodorkovsky's uh, YouTube channel. Anyway, as far as Navalny is concerned, Murzagulov was actually a key figure in the arrest and prosecution of Lilia Chanisheva, who ran Navalny's uh, headquarters in Ufa, in, in Beshkortostan, until her arrest in, in 2021. So as far as he's concerned, the situation with that is precisely that people like Khodorkovsky are perfectly willing to hire disreputable types because of their skills. And, and Khodorkovsky, in some ways, almost admitted that saying that he has uh, that Mursagulov has has particular talents and there's been other people as well who have you know been hired which the more i don't know shall we say purist reformers think think are inappropriate but again this is the whole issue at what point do you start making compromises at what point do you think well this might you know he might have been a bit of a bad lad in the past but now he's willing to put his skills to to a good cause from Navalny's point of view that is the start of, of the slippery slope Anyway, he goes on. The situation with Mursagulov, like Khodorkovsky's calls to take up arms and join Prigozhin's troops. Well, again, here I need to have another footnote. 
there's an interesting situation about how Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who clearly sort of is increasingly active in trying to kind of present himself as a tribune of the anti-Putin forces on the outside or on the inside. I mean, back in autumn of last year, he actually called for Russians opposed to the Putin regime to carry out sabotage at this time of war, though he said he, he would drew, draw the line at terrorism. Uh, it's worth noting this. It's, it's a bit of a hazy line. But anyway... More striking, though, was with Prigozhin's recent mutiny. At that point, he, he basically said, he tweeted out this, As strange as it may sound, I think anti-war Russians should support Prigozhin in this moment. He's no ally of ours, and this support will be very temporary and conditional. But his march is a huge blow to Putin's legitimacy. And anything that fractures the regime is good. Now again, here we back. We come back to this point. Anything that fractures the regime is good, even if it actually means, at the moment at least, expressing support for a thuggish murderer, directly or indirectly. He then went on to say in, the, in an interview with The Economist that actually revolution will be carried out by the men with guns. Now, okay, there's, there's an element to which actually that is fairly obvious. But what was not so clear was quite how he envisaged this happening. I mean, was he actually calling for an arming of a Russian democratic resistance? There are, after all, some people who, who do say that's the way things have to be. Though that is also an exceedingly dangerous route, because is the democratic resistance ever going to be, as it were, better armed and organised than the forces of, of the state? I would suggest until things change very dramatically, that's not really the case. Or was this more of a kind of Trotskyist, worse is better line, that even if it means that exceedingly unpleasant turbo-nationalist types turn against Putin and you have virtual civil war or a sort of a coup, and likely then as a result serious repression, that that will be a good thing because it will generate a backlash. I mean, this is, after all, when we come down to it, the fascistification doctrine of the Italian Red Brigade terrorists in the 70s and 80s, and indeed the German Bader-Meinhof gang. The idea was that the, the masses of the West, the working class who should be the vanguards of revolution, had been brought under the, well, again, actually it was a Gramscian concept, the hegemony of the bourgeoisie, and convinced wrongly that the status quo worked in their interests. What one needed to do was to provoke the regimes of the, of the West into massive and excessive overreactions and repressions, which would wake up the working class and make them realise who their true enemy was. It was a terrible doctrine in so many ways, apart from the fact that clearly it didn't work, but also it essentially sanctified any kind, or, or indeed arguably the worst kinds, of violence and brutality. But anyway, I mean, again, it's not quite clear. I mean, I mean, Khodorkovsky, I do not get the sense that it's in any way a kind of kindred spirit of the Red Brigades or whatever. But nonetheless, it, it does raise all kinds of questions. How far can you go? to bring down such an unpleasant authoritarian and brutal regime and is something like cheering on Prigozhin 
something, anything that a, a liberal ought to be doing. But I digress. Let me return to Navalny's words. So, he talks about Mursagulov. He talks about Khodorkovsky's calls to take up arms. These show perfectly well that even now, in the year 2023, during the repressions, imprisonments and war, loyalty to principles is still questioned in our country and is seen by many as naive, romantic and generally as a white coat. So in other words, he's saying precisely, if the ends justify the means, doesn't everybody end up equally corrupted? And so, well, if we were to follow that, what should we do? Let's all join United Russia then. We'll create a fraction of hardcore Sabianinists. That's what I call them. The basis is already there. Then we, solid Sabianinists, demand immediately take the bad Putin away from us and give us the good Sabianin and Mishustin, Shuvalov and Liksutov. Again, OK, time for another little footnote. Um, I think it's interesting that he actually calls this this type of approach Sabianinist, because Sabianin, the mayor of Moscow, I mean, I, for me, is quite an interesting example of someone who absolutely has enriched himself in the current environment and certainly has not turned against Putin, but at the same time is clearly uncomfortable with the war, has genuinely, even while he and his friends have enriched themselves, also done a lot of real good for Moscow. So, I mean, in some ways, he, he could be seen as an avatar of the 1990s style technocrat in form, corrupt politician in, in reality. But on the other hand, one could actually say, you know, as a, as a stepping stone from Putinism to something better, maybe not a bad, a bad example. Remember, Sabianin also argued for Navalny way back in the day when this was an even plausible notion to be allowed to stand against him in elections for the Moscow mayoralty. Clearly, Sabianin planned to win, but he wanted the legitimacy of actually having had a proper fight. Anyway, who, who else are we talking about? So, Sabianin and Prime Minister Mishustin, Shuvalov, uh, well, I mean, Shuvalov, well, I mean, he's former First Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Chair of VEB, which is the former Venesh Econom Bank, uh, Foreign um, Economic Bank. He's, he's reckoned to be worth at least uh, $200 million these days, I think he owns or own two large flats in London worth £10 million. And for me, the, the anecdote that I always love the most is that he used a private jet to fly his wife's corgis round Europe to various dog shows. I would like a private jet, but I must admit I'm not sure if I'd necessarily expect my dogs to have one. And the other one, the other name that, that Navalny throws out, again, is, is, is much less well-known, Maxim Luksutov. He's the deputy mayor of Moscow in charge of transport. There have been allegations of links to the Magnitsky case, but more to the point, uh, he's generally regarded, and I have no idea if it's true or not, of course, of being involved in, in, in the spill, in, in the so-called sawing, in other words, taking a cut out of a lot of the big transit projects that have taken place in, in Moscow, particularly the big um, light rail ring line. So anyway, you know, what he's more or less saying is, look, these are the people who exactly are the sort of sometimes really rather dull, but nonetheless apparently just sort of straightforward technocrats. Yeah, fine. Yes, why not go for them? So he goes on. 
so don't doubt it. Tomorrow we will have a new chance, that window of opportunity. And tomorrow we will have to deal with those that think that elections should be cancelled or falsified. God forbid extremists will be elected. It is okay to bribe journalists. We don't pay anyone. We just ask an oligarch we know to buy this TV channel. Courts should be kept on the hook. Or they'll bribe judges and juries. The personnel base of the government should not be changed. They're professionals. We should not recruit people from the streets. And so on. Those with such ideas will not be Putinists or Communists at all. They will once again call themselves Democrats and Liberals. Now look, he acknowledges that life is hard and one has to make compromises and deal with often unpleasant people. However, I'm very afraid that the battle for principles may be lost again under the slogans of Realpolitik. For now, it seems to me there is nothing better to do than to stay true to yourself and tirelessly explain to people with numerous examples and he mentions Gurdjieff and Triesman's book Spin Dictators that democratic principles, pragmatism, independent judiciary, fair elections and equality of all before the law are the best mechanisms of harsh real life on the way to prosperity. Only when the vast majority of the Russian opposition consists of those who under no circumstances accept fake elections, improper judicial proceedings and corruption, then we will be able to make right use of the chance that will surely come again. So that no one in 2055 will be reading Sharansky's book in the Shizo, thinking, wow, it's just like me. So... This is Navalny's latest broadside, and, and very much his, his credo. This idea that the opposition to Putinism, the people who want to bring genuine democratic legal reform to Russia, must be a very, very cautious about the half measures, the compromises, the concessions, which in the 1990s paved the way for the creation of in effect, a kleptocratic authoritarianism, even before Putin was nominated and placed at its head. So what I want to do now is, after the break, look really into two, two particular issues that it raises. One is this whole thing about reform versus revolution, and then secondly, about the role of the West. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. As I mentioned in the past, Tsar Ivan the Terrible, Ivan Grozny, I mean, his, his epithet Grozny doesn't really mean terrible in Russian. It's not an easy one to translate. It means more something like dread or just simply awesome and awe-inspiring. goes back to the sort of Greek word and concept denos, Terrible in the sense of anything that was kind of out with the usual levels of, of human experience and capacity. And 
in some ways, I think we have to recognize that, that Navalny is, is also Grozny. On one level, I am still in, in genuine awe of his, his will, and sure, in part, I'm sure it's driven by a degree of hubris, but nonetheless, his, his will, his willingness to put himself on the line for what he believed in, you know, he knew when he went back to Russia that he was going to be arrested and put in prison, and probably also knew that, certainly so long as the current regime is in place, he wasn't coming out. And yet, he still manages to hold on to not just his sanity and his commitment, but also actually a, a degree of, of humour and, and humanity. At the same time, there is something about the sheer purity of, of the vision he's putting out that is also quite terrifying in a way. It's terrifying in the sense of exactly that it's as if in prison in particular, and again, look, this is entirely understandable, but it's as if all the, the, the scope for appreciating the, the complexities and the compromises of real life and real politics have been baked out of him by the sort of the heat of that anger and that, well, yes, hatred, as he himself rightly puts it. Let's ask again, what's wrong with the Sabianinists? Now, of course, to Navalny, what's wrong is that these, these are still morally compromised people. These are the kind of people who, left to their own devices, would naturally recreate the sort of regime that, first of all, impoverished and stole from Russians in the 1990s and then installed a Putin in charge of them. And in, in many ways I, I can totally understand that. However, I would suggest that one could see, and look, I, I don't have a direct answer myself, which, which is the best, and in some ways it's, it's for Russians to decide what's going to work for them. But first of all, I mean, I think that there are wider dynamics that are pushing Russia in different directions from the 1990s, and frankly will, will continue to do even more so, arguably, as this, this terrible war continues. That you have a difference in that in the 1990s, no one owned, well at first, no one owned anything really. There was suddenly this massive transition of property from the state into private hands. And at that point, this is where you have the kind of creation of the new class, the creation of the oligarchs and such like. That is not going to be the case with any future transition, especially if it's essentially a, a transition from, from one man in a grey suit to another man in a grey suit. Yes, there will be some losers and there will be some redistribution of assets, but there won't be the kind of massive systemic transition that we saw before. Instead, what we will see are the settled bandits becoming all the more settled. In other words, people who have already done their stealing now looking to legitimise it. And I've, I've talked about this in the past. My view is that actually the next political generation will be pragmatic kleptocrats, but precisely because they're pragmatic kleptocrats, they will have an interest in the rule of law. Because that's the way that they guarantee their own control over whatever assets they've stolen, but also their capacity to pass it on to a new generation. And remember, these people are getting older. They are beginning to think about transition. And Russia is on the cusp of one of the biggest intergenerational transfers of wealth the world has ever seen. And that's really important because, look, you cannot have, and this is something that Navalny sort of picks up very, very accurately, I think. You cannot have democracy without rule of law. 
You can't have rule of law without democracy. There are authoritarian regimes that are relatively honest authoritarian regimes, even though that's relatively rare. But you absolutely can't have democracy without rule of law. And in many ways, that was one of the key blunders of the 1990s. The attempt to create that kind of appearances of democracy with elections and parties and the like. But without rule of law, it was just too easy to bypass and deform that process. The classic example being precisely what happened in 1993 when Boris Yeltsin in a contest with an admittedly extremely unpleasant parliament, the Supreme Soviet, which was a hangover from Soviet times and full of the kind of people who got elected in Soviet times, you know, party hacks, nationalists and so forth. But still, the constitution is very straightforward. The point at which Yeltsin turned against the Supreme Soviet, the parliament, the legislature, was the point at which Boris Yeltsin was no longer president. What happened? Because Yeltsin may not have had the constitution on his side, but he did have the tanks. He shells parliament into, into submission. He rewrites the constitution retrospectively to make it okay. Now, that's not the way things are meant to work. But instead, he got away with it, and it's a classic example of what happens. I mean, one of the essences, after all, of a democratic system is the possibility that you will lose. The fact that at some point, the other guys, the other perspective, will win, and you just have to take it. The point at which Yeltsin made it clear that, frankly, maintaining his control over the system was more important than the constitution and thus the law already shows the degree to which democracy has failed. So if this next generation, the Sabianinists, might well also be the legalists, they are not likely to be Democrats in any meaningful way, but they create the preconditions for future democracy. There's also a very practical point I would make is if you have a very purist vision for how change will happen and who will be in charge afterwards, if you absolutely turn your back on compromises, even with what we might think of as the less tainted members of the ancien regime, then you are basically picking one hell of a fight. Take Sabianin. I'm sure there are a lot of people who, let's say, if Putin disappeared from view tomorrow, wouldn't that be nice? And somehow from the, the arcane maneuvers of different groups and interests behind the scenes, Sabianin emerged as the likely candidate to be the next president. I'm sure there are many people currently within the elite who would not be very happy about that, particularly given the degree to which Sabianin is so evidently lukewarm about the war in Ukraine. But on the other hand, they probably reckon that they could live with him. They don't think he's going to come after them, in, you know, he, that he's going to be sending people in the middle of the night to kick down their doors, or he's going to be uh, seizing all their property or whatever else. So they will probably go along with it. On the other hand, what happens if all of a sudden it looks like some kind of Navalny figure is about to take power? For these people, they realise there is absolutely no place for them within the system as envisaged by this, this new, new broom. And so they really will have no option but to either A, flee, or B, and I think this would actually be more likely in the majority of cases, fight. You know, again, it's this issue of how far are you willing to go? How purist are you willing to be? Are you willing to bring a, 
and unfortunately all the kind of uh, parallels tend to be ex excessively extreme and blood-soaked. But a year zero approach, the more I say we must sweep away everybody else. At what point does lustration, the desire precisely to, to weed out those figures who are not, should not be entitled to being in public life, become a purge? Now, I, I don't know. I honestly don't have an answer to this. But on the, whereas on the one hand, I was marvelling at the, the clarity of Navalny's vision for what had to be done. Maybe it's precisely because I am a flabby Western liberal at heart. I was also worrying about it. In some ways, this is precisely where revolutions come from. They come with all the best intentions. And yet, the road from, well, if one thinks of the Bolshevik Revolution... You know, the ideal was this a world without oppression, without hunger. And yet, in the name of that world, we have the Troikas, the firing squads. This is the danger of having a pure perspective. On the one hand, it, it gives you clarity and moral authority. On the other hand, you really are picking one hell of a fight. The second point I wanted to look at was precisely about the role of the West. And as I said, this is something that, for whatever reason, Navalny doesn't talk about. And understandably, in the sense of he is essentially talking to Russians about Russian issues. And the West cannot, will not, and did not shape Russia's future. That was in the hands of the Russians then, as it will be in the future. But nonetheless, I think it is worth looking at the West's role back in the 1990s, not least because of what it can say about how the West can respond in some kind of future when this this opportunity, this, this, this uh, chance, the next chance that Navalny describes comes about. And I have to say, I am very critical of Western policy towards Russia in the 1990s. Now, it's a lot easier in hindsight, but nonetheless, with that glorious 2020 hindsight... Nonetheless, it is clear just how far we let ourselves as well as Russia down. Generally speaking, I think it, it, it is fair to say that, that, that we neglected to think about Russia that much. It's a time when all of a sudden um, expertise in Russia was in, within governments was being run down. After all, we'd won the Cold War. Hey, everything was, was great. What efforts were being uh, focused were basically being focused on the Central European countries of the former Warsaw Pact, as well as the Baltic states, which were sort of trying to move themselves, and we were encouraging them, into closer alignment with the West and in due course membership of the European Union and indeed of, of NATO. So that was our focus. Russia, we just didn't want it to be a problem. And as a result... We encouraged a whole variety of what turned out to be deeply retrograde moves. I mean, the the crash privatizations, which absolutely, basically, moved huge amounts of of public goods into private hands for copex on the ruble, and we knew that that was what was happening. But we thought that was okay. First of all, because there was this fear that, that the communists would return to power, and in some ways we wanted the state to be as I wouldn't say weak, but shall we say small as possible, so that the communists would have fewer resources at their disposal if that happened. Secondly, there was this uh, naive, deterministic notion that the market would work everything out, that sure, all kinds of dubious practices and dubious people 
were involved, but that doesn't matter. Because basically, once it's in private hands, you know, it, it, it will just naturally, you know, whether the dubious people will learn proper, you know, because after all, we, we are all um, wonderfully moral in our practices of capitalism in the West. But anyway, they, they will learn the rules of the game, or else actually the assets will in due course move into hands of people who've learned the rules of the game. So basically, just as robber barons in the United States and the UK had in due course then become pillars of, of, of society and propriety, the same would happen in Russia. Well, nice to think so, except, of course, we're once again back to that rule of law thing. One of the key reasons why that did happen, I mean, particularly if one looks at the taming of the robber barons in the United States, is precisely because you already had strong legal infrastructures and institutions, which either did or could be used to constrain the, let's call them the oligarchs of their era. Russia didn't have that, didn't acquire that. So it was always going to be a rather foolish parallel. Secondly, I mentioned 1993, when, when Yeltsin shelled Parliament into submission. And yes, it was a nasty Parliament. And we thought we could work with Yeltsin a damn sight better than, than, than them. So, although we knew perfectly well that it was illegal, nonetheless, we cheered Yeltsin on. And we should be surprised that people think that basically we're hypocrites if we talk about the importance of the rule of law and yet not just turn a blind eye to, but outright support the most fundamental breach of the law. Then in 1996, elections in which it looked as if the communists might win. A lot of people in Russia who are rich didn't like this idea. You had this coalition, the so-called seven bankers behind Yeltsin, who threw a huge amount of money possibly into outright uh, vote rigging, but certainly into a incredibly vicious media campaign, um, which w would again be t entirely inappropriate and illegal in the West. But the, the end result was to ensure that Yeltsin got elected. And again, because we didn't want to see the communists elected, so we p were delighted when, when Yeltsin came through. And we should be surprised that Russians think that democracy is actually a bit of a sham everywhere and that clearly it's managed and that essentially those in power will ensure that democracy is just simply there to maintain their power and that of their friends. I mean, this is it. We, we talk to good talk, but we absolutely failed to back that up with our actions in, in Russia. And in the process, you know, we also, again, basically neglected to consider a lot of Russian concerns. Look, I know I'm currently putting all the negatives. One can also point to positive things that we did. I'm not denying that. But, you know, on this fundamental point, we failed to basically hold in that crucial moment when Russia was uncertain and perhaps most importantly of all weak, we failed to hold its feet to the fire and expect Yeltsin or someone else. I mean, maybe even actually, yes. It should have been someone else rather than this pill-abusing drunkard who really had been a heavy-handed party boss from Sviatlovsk, since renamed back, well, returned to its old name of Yekaterinburg, now, who was not in any ways by nature democratic. Maybe it should have been someone else. And if we were really going, going to be cynical, 
perhaps that's what we should have been doing. We should have been trying to encourage someone else to emerge. In classic form, we sort of, we were, shall I say, badly interventionist enough to ensure we ended up looking poorly out of this process, but not, it, not so interventionist that we really got a figure who could have been useful. So what can this say about the future? Well, I think the, the first and most basic thing is that one should always adopt a Hippocratic approach to involvement with other countries. In other words, first do no harm. Our actual levels of capacity to change what happens in Russia are, are pretty damn limited. I mean, you think of all the uh, early boosterism about personal sanctions and how it was going to turn all the oligarchs against Putin and they were going to you know, bring him to heel and such like. Well, has that happened? Absolutely not. If anything, this rather moronic policy has ensured that most of these oligarchs are now more dependent on the state than ever before. Because precisely the businesses that used to, to make the money no longer are, therefore they are dependent on those contracts that the government pushes their way. So, you know, let's, let's have a considerable degree of humility and be very careful not to make things worse. We could, for example, by over-thuggish rhetoric about Russians or by seeming to support policies which actually you know, can be spun as proof that we want Russia dismembered or the like. So that's a kind of a, an initial caveat that again we absolutely did not, we did not have the humility to bear that in mind in the 1990s. The second point is that there, there will be an absolute need for sticks and carrots. Look, ultimately it's going to be Russia's decision which way it goes in the future. It will be the Russian people who decide what they're willing to accept and what they're willing to do. That doesn't mean, though, that we just simply sit back and say, we don't care what decision you make, we'll be fine, whatever. No, it is clear that if you want to be part of a world community, if you want to have the connectivities with the West, that you absolutely want. And whether that's in terms of uh, the, the capacity to fly your corgis to, to Switzerland, or whether it's actually the capacity to raise funds and buy technology in the West, and I think that's going to be a lot more crucial. Well, that actually requires you to do certain things. And until you do, and whether that means letting Navalny and all the other political prisoners out, whether it means addressing the rule of law issue and so forth, but until you do that, you will not be allowed into that community. You will not be allowed those, those connectivities. I mean, that is one of the key sticks that we absolutely do have. We can just simply say, you are not welcome here until. But we also have to think about, about the carrots, about the, the opportunities. It's all very well just simply saying, well, the carrot is just the right to be brought back into the world community. But it, it doesn't work quite, quite so neatly. We will have to uh, you know, address a whole number of issues. There are, after all, if we look at the sanctions regime, there are sanctions which, frankly, it's, it's hard to say that they have any real impact on policy, but absolutely have an impact on ordinary Russians' lives. Things like, for example, banning flights from Russian planes and airports into Western countries, forcing people to make all kinds of expensive roundabout routes and such. I mean, are you honestly telling me that, that Putin or, or any, frankly, Russian leader cares about whether or not some Russian can fly to Paris or Berlin? Of course not. 
And if we're worried about particular Russians coming in, well, that's what the visa system is there for. But the point is, there are all kinds of things which we could relax at no real cost to us, no real cost to any attempts to maintain pressure on the Russian state, and yet which can show that we are not actually opposed to you as a people. It's not that we're actually saying all Russians are hateful human beings who have to be kept at, heart, at arm's length, despite it has to be said the rhetoric of occasional politicians. So we have to look at how we also demonstrate that there is, that there is room that if you actually can go through this process, if you can bring about the reforms and change the behaviours, then we are indeed truly willing to welcome you. And for that, and this is my last point, that requires us to remain hopeful about Russia. And again, I think this is something that you know, actually comes out very powerfully in Navalny's words. That sense of there is nothing predetermined about Russia's trajectory. This is not a country which has, as it were, its DNA made of razor wire. It, that it will demand that it always be some kind of authoritarian basket case. Otherwise, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we always work on the assumption that Russia will be a threat, that Russia will be, at best, a failed state, at worst, a, an, an enemy or pariah state, then actually we just simply make that more likely. We provide less reason for reform, more reason for the kind of defensive paranoias which are at the heart of Putin's vision of the world. Now, at the moment, the people who have that view are on the whole Putin's cohort. And, blessed thing, they are old people and in due course they will die. And attempts to actually impose that will or on the rest of Russian society through everything from the new history textbooks onwards, do not seem to be proving that successful. It doesn't mean to say that they can't be that successful, especially if we give them a helping hand. So we have to remain optimistic about Russia, but not naive. We have to make sure that as and when it begins to try and move in the reforming direction, that we are not seduced, that we do not end up making shortcuts and allowing people to get away with theft, with corruption, with the seizure of elections. And yes, if that means that sometimes Russians are going to elect unpleasant human beings, well then so be it. That is the essence of democracy. If we are serious about democracy, if we are serious about national sovereignty, we have to give Russians the right to screw up, in our view. If we can do that, then maybe, just maybe, we can help the process on. So once again, as I say, I always like to end on, on a more upbeat note, and this time I even feel that I have the capacity to enlist Navalny to my cause. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>